HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. With New York slowly returning back to normal post-lockdown, I've been struggling to predict how much time it will take me to do things outside my house. I forget to factor in showering, gathering my belongings, returning home for the 20th time because I forgot my wallet, and of course, MDA summer delays. Once you finally get to your destination, there's a whole new wave of sensory overload. How impossible it can feel to hear someone speaking over the bustle of a restaurant, how long you're expected to stay at a concert. I don't think I've stood for this long since 2019. Even someone asking if they can squeeze by you. Long story short, it's a lot. As exciting as it is to re-enter society with lockdowns lifting, I know I'm not alone and feeling a little overwhelmed by all these seemingly new social moments. That was HRN intern Zoe Denkla sharing some insights about how it feels to emerge from lockdown. Things have changed drastically as restrictions have been lifted across the U.S., and a lot of it is exciting. We can safely gather indoors again, at restaurants, and for dinner parties. However, as we revert back to old habits, we must also consider what pandemic-era changes are worth keeping around. We're sharing a summer survival guide to help you navigate all the feels as we re-enter society. Through stories and updates from HRN's hosts and their guests, we'll look at what re-emerging entails for our personal lives, social circles, and community establishments. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. Are you hyped to host dinner parties again? We may have all gotten a little rusty, so we've gathered some helpful hosting tips from our series, The Shameless Chef. This show originally aired in the 1970s and was hosted by the late Michael A. Davenport, an enthusiastic home cook. Michael's mention of toast points transports us back decades, and yet his hosting tips stand the test of time. Tip number one. Let's talk about that little kitchen emergency 
sudden company and not enough food. I once encountered an old family adage called FHB. The initials stand for Family Hold Back. Well, somewhere in between FHB and Too Bad is a middle ground of hospitality that requires a little ad-libbing in the kitchen to make a meal for four stretch to twice that number. Or maybe the addition of just one more makes serving difficult when you only have four pork chops. Well, here are some tips. One, garbage salad. Make a big salad and clean out the refrigerator at the same time by throwing almost any leftover you've got into a lot of lettuce and make a splendid dressing. Two, take those four pork chops, cut them up, add a lot of gravy uh, and either biscuits or toast points, and serve them on it. Not terribly exciting, but it will stretch, particularly if you add some wine to the gravy and a dash more of tarragon. Hmm? Michael A. Davenport here, and I say with unexpected company, don't panic, don't FHB, stretch and ad-lib. Cheers. You welcomed everyone into your home. Congrats. So, where does that leave us? Dishes. Michael shares a trick that makes post-party kitchen cleanup a bit more bearable. I am probably, without question, the laziest cook in the world. For that reason, I simplify recipes, not to the point of losing their character, but merely to save myself work and worry. I refuse to agonize in the kitchen, and because I'm lazy, I'm neat. And here's how that incongruity works. The dinner party is over, your guests have tottered out well-fed into the night, and you confront a kitchen that looks like the bomb hit the pot and kettle factory. Your stomach is full, your metabolism is slowed down, you may be a little tipsy. You can either go to bed and face it all tomorrow like Scarlet, or clean it up to the accompaniment of much groaning, but there is an alternative. I simply clean up as I go along cooking. You know, a lot of time in the kitchen is spent waiting. You wait for something to boil, to bake, to simmer, to blaze, etc. So while those moments of waiting go on, they can be utilized by cleaning up the utensil I've just dirtied. and put it away now, and I don't have to face it later. Nothing is more reprehensible than things that are cold and greasy. Worse, far worse, the next morning, with a hangover. Lazy. See? We hope Michael's tips make the prospect of hosting people again a little less daunting. Have no fear. From the second your guests arrive to the moment they leave, the Shameless Chefs got you covered. Find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Along with inviting friends over for dinner, another possibility has opened up as restrictions ease. Stepping back into the restaurants we know and love. A few weeks ago on The Big Food Question, HRN's communications associate Dylan Hoyer explained what we were missing in the past year while we ordered takeout instead. As the United States rolls back pandemic-era restrictions, many restaurants are welcoming eaters back and expanding their seating capacity. This is a direct result of rising vaccination levels across the country and has major public safety implications. It holds promise as a needed boon to our economy. And after more than a year of isolation, reopenings offer a sorely missed space to connect. Lately, one of my interests has been the cultural issues surrounding restaurants, not so much the food in and of itself, but sort of the symbolism of restaurants beyond the food. 
we think of coffee shops and you know sitting there to work and a laptop maybe or you know hanging out at the bar but we don't necessarily think about the fact that those interactions that we have and and having that space outside of home and and outside of a formal office space is actually a really essential part of life this is Doug Mack a Minneapolis-based writer and a contributor to The Counter. In an article for The Counter, Doug takes some familiar feelings about gathering spaces and looks at them through an academic lens. The big one here is the idea of a third place. So in your life, you have the first place, which is your home where you live. You have a second place, which would be where you work. Um, And then the third place is something or some place that is used purely for socialization. And this is a concept that uh, comes from a sociologist named uh, Roy Oldenburg. And he he writes that in many ways, the third place is more home-like than home. Because it's not some place, again, where you have, you know, you can see the, the things that you need to clean, or you can see the stack of bills that need to be paid. It's just a place where you can be yourself. In stark contrast to a year of quarantining at home, in a third place, we can feel at home in a crowded space. You can think of, of like the regulars in Cheers or at, at any given bar, restaurant, coffee shop. These are people who, who might not know each other well enough to, say, go to each other's weddings, but they are people who know each other to a certain degree. And... Um, they have these, what, what sociologists call the, these weak connections. They're these, these weak links. And um, those actually turn out to be very beneficial in terms of, of networking, um, in terms of, you know, you, you casually mentioned that you're looking for a couch, say, or a job, or, you know, these little things that might come up in conversation. And to lose that, to lose these places where we can hang out um, and talk to people in this very informal way um, is actually pretty detrimental um, to, to our lives. I asked Doug if he found any ways to substitute this sense of community during the past year. I have thought about this, and there, maybe that's the answer, is there is just no substitution. All you can do is just hang on and try to get back to the place that has meaning to you, your, your own third place, when this is over. What a year of takeout has reminded me is that restaurants are certainly more than the food they serve. I have been thankful for their food so frequently this past year, but oh my god, I cannot wait to enjoy ambiance and lingering conversations and people watching, and I am grateful to know that these institutions are ready to welcome us back. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. 
Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome back to Meet in 3. Overall, the end of lockdowns is great news for New York City. But for the nightlife industry, getting back to normal may still take some time. As restrictions are lifted, so are pandemic-era exceptions that helped bars and restaurants survive for the last year. Brandon Feudernick spoke to one bar owner who thinks the end of takeout cocktails came a bit too soon. For the last year, to-go cocktails have been an essential part of New York City's nightlife industry. For bar owners and patrons alike, they've been a well-needed lifeline during the pandemic. New York lifted its state of emergency at the end of June, and permission to serve takeout drinks expired with it. The decision came last minute and left a lot of bars hanging. Albany and Governor Cuomo decided on, uh, for, for no reason that I can discern, to give us only one day's notice on the retraction of the to-go cocktail sales. Um, we were told on Wednesday afternoon that as of the final hour of sales on Thursday, uh, to-go cocktails were finished. That's Souther Teague. He runs the Manhattan Cocktail Bar, Amor y Amargo, and is the host of HRN's The Speakeasy. Even recently, as the city had started to reopen, takeout cocktails had accounted for a large chunk of Souther's revenue. The sales week prior to the revoking of the to-go cocktail mandate, I clocked 9.5% of my total sales as to-go cocktails. That includes, I have a retail store that sells, you know, books, barware, bitters, etc. That includes the reservations at my reservation-only spot uh, and any food that we sold. 9.5%. That's massive because don't forget that currently I'm only doing around 30% of my pre-pandemic numbers. So that's a real hit to have this taken away without any notice. The abrupt end of the rule leaves bar owners like Souther footing the bill for materials that they're no longer able to use. I serve my to-go cocktails in various sizes of glass bottles with tamper-evident caps and custom-made labels. So I have literally thousands of those that are now sort of inventory that I have no use for. So there's a part that seems almost cruel where the revocation uh, had less than uh, a day's notice. Our industry, just like any industry, uh, is a freight train. And you can't just turn a freight train 90 degrees. You have to sort of course correct over miles and miles and miles. And we were given no running room to do that. So it's pretty tragic. Souther is not in favor of making to-go drinks a permanent fixture, but he thinks the industry still needs time to heal from the last year of losses. 
when you break your leg, the trauma doesn't end when you break your leg. That's when it begins. Now you got to get a cast. Now you got to do some physical therapy. We've been treading water for 14, 16 months. We finally hit the shore. This was supposed to go on so that we could uh, recuperate, so that we could, you know, we might be exhausted, malnourished. We need shelter. Like the trauma doesn't end just because we made it to shore. There's still a chance for us to expire. Uh, and the guests loved it. It was a great thing. And it turns out that, you know, the city didn't sink into pandemonium or debauchery. Uh, you know, we handled it well and, and we were doing great with it. And in fact, when the mandate was put out there and I put it on all the social media for myself uh, and the bars, um, we did three times the weekly sales uh, of to-go cocktails just on Thursday. Mayor de Blasio has said he'd like to see takeout drinks stay until at least the end of the year, but the decision is out of his hands. It's up to Governor Cuomo and the state legislature, who have not taken up any bills to extend the program further. Although to-go drinks might be leaving, there are other new developments that we might consider keeping around. During the height of the pandemic, eaters turned to local food when grocery stores and large food companies had supply chain disruptions. Small farmers in many regions were able to provide directly to consumers. So what does the future look like for them, with folks returning to pre-lockdown habits? On a recent episode of The Farm Report, Lisa Held spoke to Becky Fulham of Old Ford Farm in the Hudson Valley. They discussed why consumers should continue supporting small farms. I've got two reasons that I want to highlight. So one is that your farmers need you. Farming is a job where there's no shortage of challenges. And a lot of these challenges are ones that consumers can't really do anything about. Like, you know, our land access challenge is um, no one is going to kind of turn that around. You know, that's a more systemic, uh, complicated thing. And in 2020, the challenge of marketing and of insufficient sales was completely eliminated. Consumers who couldn't find what they needed at grocery stores turned to the farms near them. In the Hudson Valley, many city dwellers fled to weekend houses. Folks who might have casually shopped at farm stands when visiting suddenly needed all their food needs met. I really can't overstate what a game changer this was. Mm. Um, it, It gave us a greater peace of mind knowing that you know, all this food that we were working hard to produce um, was going to be sold. And it allowed us to divert our time and energy toward more important things. To those who who care about the existence of small, sustainability-minded farms in your community, I just want to send the message that your support is important. The way you bought food in 2020 has made a difference, and we need you to continue. And not not just for Thanksgiving dinner, not just, you know, an occasional luxury. Right. Um, you know, we need you to come week after week to buy your groceries from us. So, so that's one reason. And the second reason, kind of more big picture, you know, climate change. The scientific community is certainly in agreement that we, as humanity, face is we're at this fork in the road. Absolutely. Where we can either go, you know, make massive changes to our lifestyles and um, our economy, or we can face the some serious consequences from climate change, and which some people are already experiencing. But if we go for the former path um, of great change and reducing our dependencies on fossil fuels, you know, there's a lot of innovation um, and technology needed to kind of make those changes without serious hardship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, buying food, if you live in an area where you can get your food from your local region, 
to me, it just seems like the lowest of the low hanging fruit, you know, mm-hmm. no major, you know, technological advance or, um, you know, innovation is, is needed for that. And of course, this it does require a big change, but in our kitchens, um, it, it requires people to think about and eat a seasonal diet. And I know that's hard. You know that that's a sacrifice. Um, you know, certainly it's easy in in August to eat seasonally, but for many months of the year, we do have to give up some of the fresh vegetables and other foods that we love. But I would just kind of like to throw out there, like what the alternatives are, and if, right. if we do kind of go the route of um, making, you know, substantial change to our economy so that we can avoid the worst of climate change. You know, eating seasonally is going to be kind of the easiest thing out there. And then I I guess at this, I also want to acknowledge that not everybody has this option to to get the bulk of their diet from local food, um, you know, either because they don't have access or they can't afford it. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm sort of just addressing, you know, those who do have the access and the resources. Mm -hmm. I would just, yeah, like to challenge you to think about the importance um, of eating locally for your farmer's sake, for the world's sake. And, you know, those are two altruistic reasons I gave. But, you know, there's also a lot of benefit (laughs) to you as well (laughs) as a consumer. So, yes, there are some things we might take with us from the past year. But we're also excited to see our friends again, to share a meal again, and maybe even get a cocktail indoors. We hope you are, too. That's our show this week. To learn more about our guests and find the full interviews mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Meet and 3. Special thanks this week to Zoe Denkla, Brianna Brady, H. Conley, and Brandon Futernick. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs> <laughs>